morning again. Let me pray for us and we'll have a look at that. Dear God, we thank you for these words of yours and we ask you that you'll open our hearts to them this morning, open our minds to them, shape us and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There was an Ecuadorian uh, news reporter and TV crew who got the fright of their lives early last week. Um, Diego Ordinola is a journalist for Direct TV Sports and he was standing outside the Barcelona um, uh, soccer stadium, not FC Barcelona, different Barcelona team, but he was doing a live cross in front of the stadium and as he's doing the live cross, a man runs up to him wearing a, a baseball cap, a face mask and brandishing a gun and starts demanding his mobile phone. And then he turns on the film crew and starts demanding their mobile phones as well. Can you imagine the shock of this actually happening to you as you're doing a live cross? You're not in like war-torn, uh, a war-torn area where there's potential for this to happen. You're just doing a live cross about a sports segment and this bloke runs up and starts demanding your mobile phone. Well, the reporter, uh, if you watch the footage, he doesn't surrender his mobile phone. No, but the film crew, the guy behind the camera bravely gives his and the bloke takes it and runs off. But I wonder, um, you know, having heard this incident, I'm not in the uh, meat industry, but I imagine if someone is and does live crosses, that this would have been sent to them, or this footage, you know, as soon as it happened, pretty much, they would have seen the footage. And then how would they have felt as they went to do their live cross? You know, they're, you know, coming to us this morning from wherever is Joe Bloggs, and there's Joe Bloggs, and there's someone with a baseball cap. What do you reckon Joe Bloggs is thinking? Freaking out, maybe? A bit scared? How would you be? A bit shocked? Would you be scared? Yes, one of us would be. Everyone else would be like, no, man, I'll take him down. I'll finish him. I think you'd probably be scared, I'm sorry to say it. But um, I reckon that in some scenarios, it's only natural to be fearful, isn't it? It's only natural that in some scenarios, the fear would be there. What, what things do you fear in life? Do you have fears? Anyone got any fears in life? Yeah, what? I know what yours is. Jan's scared of me. Uh, <laughs> and the dark, and the dark, sorry. Okay, sorry. Jan's scared of the dark, all right? And so fear controls our behavior. Picture the team, uh, the direct TV sports crew doing a cross next week outside the soccer stadium again. What's going through their minds? They're watching, aren't they? Seeing who's approaching them. They're in a space that has a greater area around them just in case someone sneaks up on them, right? It controls their behavior. Picture Jan in the dark. Terry, turn the lights on, please. All right? She doesn't like it. What else are we scared of? Spiders. Spiders. How does that control your behavior, Maz? Uh, you don't want to know. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what else are we scared of? I'm scared of sharks, all right? And so I don't mind a minute. And so what it means is that when I go to the beach, I always make sure there's one person further out than me. <laughs> I've taught the kids well. We call them shark bait, okay? That's a, that's a special name for the person who's out deeper than I am, okay? I like to go in the deep water, but I don't like the idea that there might be a little friend out there with me. And so when the shark bait comes in, I push my son out a bit further, just in case. All right, take him, not me. I'm too scared. I can't go that way. No, I don't do that. Um, I wonder what I would do if I saw a shark bait. Okay, what else are we scared of? What are we scared of? Falling from a height. And so when you go on a tall building, Brent, you love to go right on the edge like this and look right over, don't you? Okay, when you're climbing a height, you feel like you're going to fall backwards. Okay, so you want to make sure you get to the top as fast as possible. Controls your behavior. What else? What are other things we're scared of? Yep. Parachuting. And have you been? No. You're probably not old enough. But uh, 
<laughs> to be fair. Uh, but it controls your behavior. It determines how you act, doesn't it? You're not going to parachute because you're scared of it. Okay, there's a whole bunch of things that control our behavior. Some of them are simple fears like that, aren't there? Um, I had a more complex one this morning. Someone said they're scared of drink drivers. Okay? So what it does is when they see a car behaving erratically, they pull over and wait for it to pass because they're scared of drunk drivers on the road. Um, there's a whole bunch of fears that we have in life and fears can influence the way and shape the way that we live our lives. Um, there's a few simple things we had. We're going to see some more fear in 2 Corinthians 5. But what about other kind of fears that people have, like the fear of missing out? How does that shape people's behavior? It controls it in some ways. It, it influences what we do, doesn't it? You hear that there's a whole bunch of things going on and you feel like you're not part of it. I'm afraid. I, I need to be in that. It's, that's not right, you know? Um, or like you might have fear of missing out. You hear that like Bitcoin price is going up super high. So you're like, I better get some. And then it goes down or something. I don't know. Maybe that's another fear of missing out. Okay. Um, what about fear of your children facing hardship? That's a fear that some of us have. And we think, how do I stop my child ever facing hard times in life? And so we worry about it and we don't want it to happen. And we, and it influences our behavior. We try and make up for it or compensate or overcompensate maybe. What about a fear of failure? That's out there. Maybe not spoken very often, but we're in a world that puts successful people on a podium and maybe even puts shame on those who don't get so high. And we feel like, well, who am I? I want to try and get up there, climb that ladder. Maybe associated, maybe not, the fear of being judged by others. It can shape the way we live, can't it? We're all afraid of something and fears do shape our lives. Now, you might remember we've been looking at 2 Corinthians uh, for a little while now, we started looking at it last year, came back to it this year. And uh, Corinth, uh, I keep saying this, it's a city with sort of three major cultures, and these cultures are all competing with each other to stand out. There's a deeply ingrained desire to impress others. Um, being top of the tree was not frowned upon. In fact, it was applauded. And so the basic principle in Corinth was get ahead at the expense of others if required. Okay, And if you keep that in mind, so much comes to life as you're hearing the Bible read out. It would have if you remember that, it would have been speaking to you this morning, just in the reading coming out. You'd be like, oh, yeah, that's right, because they love to impress others. This is a challenge for them. And that's Paul's challenge. He's saying to them, the author Paul says, you need to be impressed by Christ. The good news of forgiveness in him is important, but they're afraid. They're afraid to change so much that they've grown up with. And we saw last week that Paul said to them, consider your present tent is still it is and the future glory that you will be a forever house in yourself and paul has confidence through the final judgment now we pick it up this morning verse 11 therefore knowing the fear of the lord we persuade others it's important to note uh the context when you're reading the bible okay and there's a little word that we start off with therefore does anyone know the old saying that goes with that When you read it, therefore, in the Bible? No. I told the 8 o'clockers they were going to be the only congregation who knew the saying, and they didn't know it. So I'm like, oh, okay. Maybe no one tell anyone knows. When you see a therefore in the Bible, what do you got to do? You got to ask yourself, what is the therefore? Therefore. What is it therefore? Right? Get it? It's not. Yeah. Who's going to remember that next time they see a therefore in the Bible? And who thinks that I'm just, you know, a bit of a lunatic right now? Fair enough to put your hand up. It's okay. Anyway, what's it doing there? It links us back to something, doesn't it? He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Therefore, what do you mean? Well, we look back, and if you've got your Bibles there, 
there's a subheading in the way which is rather unfavorable because Paul doesn't put that there, nor a paragraph break. In fact, he says, for we must all, in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There's that fear of God that he has. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. A conviction that we will all stand before God and give account of ourselves. But is Paul saying that he's afraid of what God's going to say about him? Well, no, because as he said earlier, that he has confidence before God, not because of what he has done, but because of what God has done in him. And he reiterates that later in this passage as well. He knows God's love for him in Christ. But we should still have that reverential awe of God. And we know the fear of God because we know where others stand before him who haven't accepted the good news of Christ. And if we understand who we are before God, if we have that healthy reverence and awe of God, then it's going to shape the way that we think and the way that we act. And it's going to influence our view of other people. And Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing how terrifying it would be to stand before God and give account, Paul says, we try and persuade others. Because what can you say? You come before God, right? And God says, okay, quick, you got a few minutes here. Give account for every single thing you did in your life. And then he starts picking on some things. And you're like, oh, you know, why did you say this? Why did you do that to them? What, what excuse can you give? The dog ate my homework? It's not, it's not going to cut the mustard, is it? Why, says God, why did you let other things push in? Why were you so afraid of people that you let them drive your actions? Why did, why did you reject me as God of the universe and try and rationalize it out? You know, if he influences that, I'm scared of sharks. I don't swim out too far. Doesn't seem too bad. But if I'm scared of failure, and so I worship success and spend my life focused on that, consuming all others, or if I'm scared of my children not having opportunity, and so I sacrifice everything to worship them and their success in life, what do I give as an excuse before God there? What drives our behavior? Because Paul knows both the fear of God and the forgiveness of God. But what he sees as he looks around is a world out there that is stuck, a world out there driven by fear of small things. And he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Because they need to understand what they should really be afraid of. But the fear comes with good news, as he goes on to say. But what we are is known to God. And he goes on to make his case again. In verses 11, 12, and 13, says to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ, essentially. He's saying, I'm not trying to impress people. I don't want them to look at me and go, Paul, so great. It's not about outward experiences. No, no, he says, end of verse 12. So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. He says, it's in the heart that matters, not about the outward experience. Boast about what God has done inside. That is what really matters, says Paul. On February 13th, a Ukrainian man found himself in trouble with the law. Um, it's a bit of an uh, awkward story, but he was an unnamed Ukrainian man from the village of Gribova Rudnia. Maybe I should have said an unnamed village as well, I think. Um, he, uh, he decided he wanted to control events in his town. See, what had happened was that they have had heavy snowfall there this year, and his village had been snowed in for a few days. And people wanted to get out and about. They wanted to leave the village and go to the big town and get the shops, right? Uh, and this man decided he could control events. He could get people out. And so one day he called the police and confessed 
to the gruesome murder of his stepfather. He told the police how they had got into a heated argument and then he had taken a knife and stabbed his stepfather repeatedly in the chest and the man had bled and was now not breathing. And he said to the police, I will turn myself in, just come to my home. So sure enough, the police dispatched the team to pick up the self-confessed murderer, complete with snowplow. And when they got to his house, what did they find? His stepfather had healed miraculously. He must be a vampire, I suppose. The wounds were gone and he was breathing. And the unnamed man from the unnamed village confessed that he just wanted to get out and save his village. And the only way he could think to do it was to get a real snowplow in that the cops would bring. And so he called up and confessed the murder to control the scenario and get people out. Something of a hero, but if you're wondering if he got in trouble, yes, he got a hefty fine to the tune of $5.40 for controlling that situation. Now, we look back at 2 Corinthians, and we see the word control in verse 14. And we kind of think, well, that's controlling, isn't it? That guy's behavior. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. But when when the word control is used here, it's not in a manipulative sense, like that guy telling fibs to get the snow cleared, okay? It's more of a motivating sense. You could translate the word compels us. It's got a positive connotation. Look at it again. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. Because we have concluded that, uh, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. What's the point he's making here? What he's saying is that they don't fear others. They don't try to impress other people. Rather, they want to persuade people with the good news of Jesus. Because the good news is good news for all, he says. People need to hear it. They need to be given the chance to respond to it. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, just picture this. Um, you randomly happen to have found a cure for COVID that you can do at home and requires no e- external um, apparatus. Let's, for example, sake, say that you hold your breath five times in a row and it cures COVID. It, it doesn't, okay, just in case you're wondering. But hold it as long as you can five, and that cures COVID. What are you going to do if you make that discovery? Great, I'll just keep that to myself then because that'll suit me. What are you going to do? Put it on Facebook, Tim. Now, we can't go on Facebook because they don't like Australia at the moment. Is that right? Sorry. I'm, not, I'm not sure where we stand on this, people. Uh, put it on somewhere else. Don't tell the news. The news won't put it on. Oh, yeah. yeah if you put it on the news, we're getting, we're getting sidetracked here by Facebook. Let's just leave that alone. Okay. You're going to tell everyone. Who's going to tell everyone? Who would tell people? Who wouldn't? And it might sound stupid. They might be like, well, as if that's going to work. And what are you going to say? Just give it a try, right? Just give it a try. And sure enough, it works. Um, it's a dumb example, isn't it? But if, it, if you found a cure to a disease, you would share the good news, wouldn't you? Um, there's a lot of diseases out there. A lot of money goes into finding cures for diseases. A lot of money goes into cancer. Research on cancer. There's so much money spent on that every single year. And with the COVID vaccine, a lot of money was spent on that last year. And into this year, $24 million our government is spending on advertising alone for us to take the vaccine, let alone producing it, let alone the research that got done. I I think, I don't have any stats for you, but in July last year was the most current stat I could find. Five billion US dollars they spent on research for the vaccine alone. Why? Because it was seen as a critical condition that needed a cure, okay? Now, there's an even more critical condition that we're very aware of, and that is death, okay? And a very critical condition that we happen to have a vaccine for. Death and judgment, and we have the vaccine. Christ. 
And Paul says, we persuade others because Christ's love compels us. A priceless cure for the human condition of death and judgment and fear. Fear can be cured through Christ. Fear of impressing others. Fear of success or failure. None of these things matter in the light of eternity. And you might think the governments have spent a lot on COVID and researching and vaccines and that sort of thing. Well, we have something of infinitely more value. Something that can solve for all eternity whatever issues anyone may face. Death, disease, virus, even judgment before the throne. And Paul says, why, why, do we, why are we passionate about this, says Paul? Why do we come into your city where you want to be impressive and make ourselves out like losers? Why? Because Christ's love compels us. And you can see why he's so passionate. And I think we need to feel his passion here and embrace that as a church. We need to have that passion. It's not very loving to think the good news of Christ is for me to keep for myself. Why don't we share it? Is it because we're scared? We're fearful? We've got the um, more mission week coming up, 21st to 28th of March. That's coming up. Um, it's going to be a great week, a busy week. There's going to be lots of things on. There'll be some special talks on the Sunday. Um, there'll be some midweek events. There'll be a dinner out. Um, there'll be a, a barbecue uh, on the Saturday. Uh, there's going to be some coffee things out the front in the morning. There'll be all sorts of things going on, all right? Heaps of things going on. Lots of great things happening. It'll be a busy week. There's like 250 churches in the diocese. Um, I think there's about 10 teams, maybe 15, but some do mission outside. So you probably get a mission once every like 25 years on average, right? Um, I don't know when the last time our church had one. It could be a long, long time ago, okay? And it's going to feel good. There'll be like 10 or 20 Bible college students coming, working shoulder to shoulder with us. It's going to be busy. But God is not giving us this opportunity so that we can feel busy. That's easy to finish mission. How did it go? It was really great. We were busy. It was so good. It was so busy. Yeah, we had lunches every day with the students and we had some dinners out that we went to. And uh, there was the, the Monday night training thing we, we went to and we all came to church on Sunday with the college students. It was busy. God doesn't want us to do it so we're busy, right? Because as Paul says here, knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? We need to persuade others who are stuck focusing on the fear of the minor things in life. We need to have that genuine love for our friends. I keep saying, have one person you're praying for. I hope we've all got that. We've all got one person. Pray that they're going to come along to something at church. That's why I say, pray they'll come along, all right? Pray that we'll have an opportunity maybe to share our faith with them. Pray for this mission week, that they'll come to something or some things in the mission week. And here's the thing. Ask them. Be brave. And do not take no for an answer. Just say this to them, okay? Would you come along? Uh, I'm pretty busy. Please, it would mean a lot to me. And because they are fearful of upsetting you, okay, you're playing on their fear, they'll come. That's okay, play on their minor fears so that you can actually expose them to their grand fear of death and give them the promise of eternal life. Do what it takes. It's scary, isn't it? Because we're scared of losing face. But are we scared of people? Or like Paul, are we scared for them? I had a, an eye test on, uh, on Monday this week. I booked it in a couple of weeks beforehand. I don't know why. It was plenty of open spots, but I just decided that was my date and I would book it in. Uh, and in, I, I'd been getting to the stage where I thought I need to go and see someone because 
you know, my eyes are feeling tired and I'm not sure I can see the back screen at church anymore. I booked it in and I really had trouble the last couple of weeks looking at the back there and I'm like, I can't make the words out properly. And, you know, looking in the distance when I was driving, I was starting to think, oh, this is, this is bad news. I need to get my glasses upgraded because they're not quite strong enough to help me see clearly anymore. So I go to the optometrist on Monday and the closer I got to the, to the appointment, the worse I could see. It was getting quite bad. Uh, everything was blurry. Um, you know, I was talking to Tom in the front row and it was actually Brent. I'm like, oh, wow, sorry. I mean, you both got moustaches, but that's not really very similar. Um, so I'd set myself a budget for the, for the new thing, for the, for my new glasses, my new lenses. I went and had my eye test and the guy's having a chat to me. I'm just thinking, just break the news to me, buddy. Tell me, tell me what I need here. Anyway, he's like, why has it been four years since your last test? And I'm like, yeah, they always do this to you, don't they? They guilt you into thinking that, yes, you, you are a fool because you didn't come in. And before that, what was it? Oh, it was four years before that. So you've had one test in eight years. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Why, why'd you come in? Well, my eyes, I, I can't see anymore. Yeah, well, that's funny you say that because you can. Your eyesight hasn't changed in eight years. I walked out of the shop. I put my glasses back on. I can see perfectly. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, I walked back in here. Oops, I stuffed up my headset. And then I walked back in the church and I, I put this on here. Just have a test. I could see the word perfectly again. I drove my car. I could see in the distance. I can even see Brent and Tom in the front row now. It's all, it's all fine. I had talked myself into not being able to see clearly when I, I could. My eyesight hadn't changed at all. It was all in my head. And my eyes magically improved when I got confirmation that they were actually fine. Uh, so we can cloud our vision in our heads sometimes, but we look back at 2 Corinthians in verse 16, the question has to be asked, do we have a clear vision or have we clouded it in our head? Okay? 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. It's a bit complex, but here's Paul, the apostle writing this. Who was he originally? How did he originally view Christ? Does anyone know? Big fan? Not much of a fan. In fact, a bit of a hater, you might say. A passionate hater. He uh, would go and get death warrants signed or permission to put people in jail or bash them up or he would approve of executions. He was not a, a lovely bloke towards Christ and his followers at all. And then Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus, literally blinded him and restored his sight, opened his eyes to the good news. A new creation, the old has gone, the new has come. And how? Verse 18, it's through reconciliation. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is a huge buzzword, I think, in our society today. Um, it's, it's a word that's used quite a bit. And we talk about reconciliation but we're not really talking about true reconciliation. I don't think when we talk about it in society, we talk about trying to bring groups together and finding some sort of common ground. But reconciliation is far more than that. It's a complete restoration, isn't it? It's a, a, an accurate and, and restored relationship. And it tells us here that's what God did for us. God reconciled us to himself in Christ. He did all that was needed to restore our relationship with himself. He intervened in Paul's life on the road to Damascus, literally blinding him and making him see again. He intervened in our lives. I don't think, that's a guess, I don't think he blinded any of us and made us see again. But he gives us clear sight of who Jesus is. He intervenes in our life. He makes us his friend. All our sin counting against us, Jesus takes. He takes it upon himself and pays the price. He faces that wrath on our behalf. 
as he dies on the cross and rises again and shows that he has conquered sin and death for all time. Therefore, verse 20, therefore, what do you think of when you hear that word? Okay, three of you are listening at the start. That's not bad. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Because of what God's done for us, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is God's message for the world. And how does he send it out to the world? In a big sky-written message? No, no, he picks frail people like us. He entrusts it to us. And he says, you don't need to fear the world anymore. Make the appeal to the world. Be reconciled to God. Because, in verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I was speaking this morning uh, and after church. A lady, Pat, comes up to me and Pat says to me, Craig, that verse 21 changed my life. That verse saved my life. She tells the story of when she was 46 years old and she was at church. She'd been going to church for a long time and a visiting minister came on a mission by coincidence, as the story goes. It's so good, isn't it? It's God's timing. This all falls in place. And, and this minister preached and he spoke on verse 21. And she said she'd been coming to church and never thought she was good enough for God. And what did she finally realize? Yeah, she wasn't. But in verse 21... For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah, we're not good enough. Of course we're not. But God changes everything and presents us perfect and blameless before him in Christ. And she said she'd been coming to church for a good number of years, but at 46 years of age, she gave her life to Christ that day, realizing what he had done for her. It's good news for a world that lives in fear, a fear of not being good enough. But God is. Now, there's a story about a man and a boy and a donkey. And um, the man and the, the, the man, the old man and the boy are walking beside the donkey. And they're going to take the donkey to market. And as they're taking the donkey to market, a man on a horse rides by. And he looks at me, laughs at me, says, what are you doing? Why have you got a donkey and no one riding on it? Well, fair enough, they think. So the man hops up on the donkey and they, they keep going. Um, and soon enough, oh, sorry, the, the son gets up on the donkey. God puts the son on. They keep going. Soon enough, a woman's coming back the other way. And she's walking by. She says, what is the youngster with fresh legs doing on the donkey while the old man walks beside it? How could you think that was a good thing to do? Fair enough, they think. So the boy hops off and the old man hops on the donkey. They're going along. There's a man in the fields doing his, uh, his I don't know what he's doing, this. And, and he sees them going by. And, and he says to them, would you look at you? You lazy loaf. Riding on the donkey while your son is walking. Get off now. The man hops off. They don't know what to do anymore. And the story is told to show us that if you try and please everybody, you will end up pleasing nobody. And it's a very true statement of the world we live in. The world is, built, is, is engaged in this game of fear. We're fearful and we try and please others through fear. We have fear of so many things. Some are ridiculous, like you know, spiders and sharks in the dark. But other fears are far more pertinent, aren't they? The fear of missing out. The fear of our children not succeeding. The fear of ourselves facing hardship. The fear of not being good enough. The fear of not being able to succeed where we want to. The fear of being judged by others. All these are fears and real fears in our society. 
And fear drives behavior. The Corinthians, driven by fear. What do they want most of all? To be accepted by their society and stand out. And that puts them as a church in sharp contrast with God, doesn't it? God's will for their lives is not to try and please the world. And I think churches today face that same pressure. We get pressured to try and please the world, impress people. Individuals, as individual Christians, we face that same pressure. Please those around us, impress them. We fear the world. We want to fit in. But you're never going to find true reconciliation by trying to fit in. Now, we need to take our stand and say our position is that we follow Jesus. Who do we fear? We fear God, not people. But at the same time, we know what God has done for us in Christ. And so we should love people as God did. Why? Because his love compels us, as Paul says. And so we try, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We pursue true relationships, calling people to be reconciled to God. Well, in theory, that's what we do. Because the question remains, doesn't it? Do we do these things? Is that who we are? Do we look to the future? Do we fear God, not people? Do we love others as Christ's love compels us? Do we need to lift up our eyes and restore our vision? Get our, our sight checked. Remind ourselves, God gives us pure vision. And see through his lenses once again. Is it that we need to change priorities? Admit we've been living in fear. Because like it or not, fear will shape your life. Okay? Is it fear of people or fear for them? Um, oh, that's the guy in uh, the unnamed village, and that's his snowplow. Okay, sorry. Uh, this is the band Max Q. Anyone heard of them? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well done, boys. Who's Max Q? Sorry, sorry, Tom. And uh, <laughs> it's Michael Hutchins' spin-off project, wasn't it? Okay, so Michael Hutchins, lead singer of NXS, had a spin-off project called Max Q. And uh, they did a song, it must have been like in 1988 or something like that. Um, but the song was titled God or the Bomb, okay? And the basic tenet of the song is that it's either God or the bomb, it's just the same, it's only fear under another name. That's the song, right? Um, now, of course, you know, artists, yeah, they like thinking dark things and trying to make morose statements about peace in some way. I'm not sure what he was trying to achieve with it, but it's quite a stirring lyric in the end when you think about it. It's God or the bomb, it's just the same, it's only fear under another name. He's almost under something, isn't he? He's almost under something. Because people do live their lives driven by fear. Fear of something. We've looked at some of those things, haven't we? But instead of being fearful, why don't we think about reconciliation? Because that's the only way out of fear. Being reconciled to God. In 2 Corinthians, we see that uh, giving into fear, we, we are tempted to try and please others, impress them, give a good impression. But... Because of Christ's love, we need not fear people. We should be afraid for them. As ambassadors for the king, we should measure ourselves by God's assessment. We should offer a gospel lens and strive to see people reconciled to God. Let me pray that we'll do that. Father, there's so much in these verses, and we only touched on them this morning. But we thank you so much that we can now regard no one according to the flesh. That we can see people who are in Christ as a new creation... But at the same time, we ask that your love will compel us. Knowing the fear of the Lord, help us persuade others to be reconciled to you. Imploring people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Who for our sake, you made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become 
your righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks, Craig. Um, before, I conti- before I continue in prayer and not drop that too far, um, I thought we'd talk about these people, not the unnamed person in an unnamed village in an unnamed country. Um, how does that come out? Does anyone know who they are? Apazonic, yeah. So they're, our, they're missionaries that we support, the Apazonics. Uh, and that's a recent photo of them early in January. Uh, the, the Apazonics, that's Josh, Suze, Zali, Heidi and Ruben. There we go. Thank you. Um, they're missionaries in France that, uh, as a church, we support. And, um... Sorry? No idea, but I'm sure it's in a letter that they've sent. <laughs> Which I thought I might share actually with you guys this morning, and then we'll pray, pray for them. Because it's uh, interesting what, what they've said and what's actually happening in France. So I'm just going to read a little bit of a, uh, an excerpt from, an excerpt from, um, from their letter. Um, and he says, Hello friends, I, Josh, preached through Jonah in January at an international church. <laughs> and he celebrates because he preached it in English and not in French. Uh, and had a deep theological question for us all. Why does the prophet Jonah go down below deck and fall into a deep sleep that continues into the midst of a violent storm? Was he depressed? Callously uncaring? A sleeping ninja? Maybe it was seasickness. I don't know. But he disobeys the eternal God. Then he has a nap. At Christmas, a friend suggested that perhaps it's his way of coping what he'd done. She said, that's what I do when I just can't face reality. I'm sure we feel the same sometimes. The start of the new year feels like an ugly reality storm of uncertainty and it certainly feels tempting from our part to duck our heads and close our eyes to everything. Uh, In France, despite current restrictions, which in France includes masks, restaurants, bars and gyms closed, curfews uh, at 6pm, and uh, all those schools are still open. France is past 70,000 deaths. That's roughly one per thousand. COVID is spreading at an increased rate of 20,000 new cases a day. Hospitals at 60% capacity. Rumours of more lockdown. Stress is everywhere. Mental health is a serious concern. Employees, students isolated at home. It is enough to make anyone want to lie down and have a sleep and put it all away. And yet, says Josh, centuries after Jonah, another man was asleep in a different boat, on a different sea, in a different storm, surrounded by different panicking sailors. Only this man wasn't sleeping in denial of reality. He was sleeping in peace with reality as only he has ever been before. He wasn't fleeing the word of God. He is the word of God. And when he stands and speaks, the storm hears its master. The voice quietens the storm. This is the one who came for all fleers and deniers, for all battlers and strugglers, and invites them all to have faith in him, as we've just heard. Invites them all to have faith in him and keep going, knowing that even pandemic storms aren't beyond the one's voice so i'm going to keep praying um 
for the mission in France and for, our, for the Apostolics and for the French people, as well as some of the things that are happening here in Otley. So please uh, join, me in, join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much that you are our God, that you are worthy of glory, honor, and praise. Heavenly Father, as we heard from the sermon this morning, help us to stop fearing the small things. Help us to not be so worried about pleasing the world. Heavenly Father, help us to appropriately fear you, Lord. Be impressed with Christ, as Paul's called us to be, and to worship you, because you have reconciled us. Help us to love as Christ has shown us. Heavenly Father, help us to see that Jesus is our vaccine to death. And Heavenly Father, like Paul, who wants to um, persuade all to Christ, help us to do the same. Help us to share your salvation grace to those around us, to our neighbours, our friends, our family, our work colleagues. Help us to appeal to the world about you, Lord. Heavenly Father, we, we think of um, our missionaries, the Apostolics in France. We thank you so much for Josh and Suze and, his ki- and their kids, um, Zali, Heidi and Reuben. Thank you so much that, they, that you have raised them to serve you in France. Thank you so much that uh, Josh was able to speak uh, at a conference and actually share your word to those around him. We pray for the French people as they go through um, uh, significantly harder times than we see here, Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask that the government knows, continues to be wise and actually uh, helps control the vaccine. Heavenly Father, we pray for those people who are really struggling with the lockdowns. We pray that they will turn to you during this time, that they will turn to you as their creator and actually ask for comfort. Heavenly Father, we pray for... Uh, Josh, and that they continue to um, serve you, uh, be it in online chats or times when it's not in curfew, that they are able to continue to share your word and bring, um, uh, bring hope through your word to those that don't know you, Lord. Heavenly Father, we, we, we turn now back to Oatley and we, we, think, we thank you so much um, for our church and our fellowship uh, that we can continue to come together here at church, physically together, um, and hear your word. Help us as we, as we near the mission weeks in March, we help us to um, keep praying for that and keep praying for the people that we want to invite, and we pray that they do come. Help us to be bold and help them to open their hearts to, to come and hear your word, Lord. Help us not to just treat those weeks as being busy, as Craig has said, but, all, but to really consider that as time that we can... Help spread your word. And we pray all these things in your son's great name. Amen.